Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. It's a blessing that we can be here together again to worship our God, our Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who never fails us. We welcome all of you who are here and all of you who are joining us watching via the live stream. We pray that the Holy Spirit would use the preaching of the gospel this afternoon to strengthen our faith and trust in our Saviour, Jesus Christ, that we wouldn't go home from here unchanged, that it would cause us to live our lives to his glory. Consistory has the same announcement as this morning. We received an attestation for Dathan and Katrina Plater from the Providence Canadian Reformed Church in Hamilton. This morning we welcome them into our congregation and this afternoon we welcome Dathan to the pulpit to lead the service. Before we start this worship service, let's sing together Psalm 106, verse Brothers and sisters, it's a pleasure to be in your midst this afternoon, and on behalf of Katrina and, and myself, thank you for the warm welcome, especially this morning. May we grow in, in the godliness that we heard from Reverend Tahart. Let's now arise and worship the Lord. So right away at the beginning of worship, even as we come here, even as we desire to grow in, in godliness, we do so in utter dependence on God. And so let us confess together in our hearts the words of Psalm 124, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. And God greets us this afternoon, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us continue our worship and praise him for his kingly power and creative guidance over all things with the words of Psalm 24 verse 1. Yeah. 
In Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 9 to 11, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every in heaven and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let us now join the churches of all times and places and make the same confession with the words of him one. before our God in a word of prayer. Dear faithful God and heavenly Father, we, we come before you as your people, bought by the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, as those to whom you have transferred from darkness into your marvelous light. You are our God, and we are your people. Father, we love you, and it's our desire, be it in weakness, it's our desire to, to worship you. But our love for you is only because you loved us first. Because in your good pleasure you chose to set your love on us. It wasn't because we were more moral. It's not because we were living better than those around us. It's not because of anything special in us. It's simply because in your grace and in your mercy you chose to love us. Once we were strangers and and refugees from your mercy and grace, but now we are at home with you. Once we were your enemies, we didn't care about you, we didn't want to serve you, we didn't want to be here in church. We only desired to be, to follow in our own way, to serve ourselves. But Lord, where our sin abounded, your grace abounded much more. For your spirit has worked in our hearts, changing them, making us week by week want to come and worship you, making us want to live for you. And so we pray that as we come before you and as we also come to your word, we pray that the Holy Spirit would dwell in us richly this afternoon as we open it. Lord, often as we come into worship, there's so many clamoring voices that, that vie for our attention and and, and what happens instead of worshiping you, we can be so distracted. We can sing praises to you, but, and our minds can drift off. Thinking about other things, thinking about our struggles, thinking about the cares of the following week. And so we pray that you would put aside the busyness of life, put aside the struggles of life. That we would be able to hear your voice and not those vo voices that vie for our attention. We pray that you would break down the barriers that prevent your word from penetrating our hearts 
And may we hear your word not as the words of men, but the voice of our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's my intention this afternoon to preach God's word to you as it comes to us in Genesis, the story of Joseph. And we're going to be working through his life, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks. But in preparation for that, let's turn together in Genesis. So Genesis is a foundational book. It's where we read about the creation of the world. We read about the fall into sin. But we also read about God's plan to redeem a world that has fallen into sin. And so let's first turn to Genesis 12, where God comes to Abram and gives him these these promises and establishes a covenant with him. So Genesis 12, and we're going to read together the verses 1 through 9. So Genesis 12, verses 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son. And their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So far from Genesis 12, let's also move now to Genesis 35, where God brings those same promises, and this time he's, he gives it to Abram's descendant, Jacob. So we'll read the verses 1 through 15 of Genesis 35. So Genesis 35 verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and all the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Alone Bakuth. God appeared to, Ab- to Jacob again when he came to Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, 
Bethel. So far from the reading of God's word, let us now also sing from Psalm 119, verse 39, where we praise God for the sweetness of his word. The text for this afternoon is from Genesis 37, the verses 1 through 11. And this is the the beginning of the account of Joseph and Jacob. So we'll be working through the first 11 verses, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll work through the rest of this chapter. So Genesis 37, verses 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So far from the reading of God's word, after the proclamation of the gospel, we'll sing from hymn 66, verses 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, think of the the last time that you watched a play or or maybe a, a live theater production. Maybe it was some time ago, maybe it was the Martin Luther play that was put on uh, a couple of years ago by the year 11 students, or the Tale of Two Cities play that happened some years prior to that at Penrose. You can picture yourself going to that, the big auditorium, 
You see those red curtains, the, the red chairs. So as you think about that, think of all the mechanics that go into a good play. When you watch a play, you, you see the, the actors on stage, you see these magnificent sets. But what you don't see is, is everything that's going on behind the scenes. Everything that's going on backstage. You don't see the stage hands bustling about, grabbing things. You don't see the, the makeup artists doing all the makeup for the, the actors. You don't see the, custo- the, the, uh, the costume designers. You don't see any of that. You don't see the people prompting them when they forgot their lines. But if you think about it, that's what makes a good, good play possible. So you could say that the actors and the people on stage, they, they lead the play, but it's really what's going on behind the stage that carries things along. So what we see, in a way, is, is just the tip of the iceberg. And this afternoon's text is very similar. So at first glance, all we see is these actors on stage, you could say. But what we see is something that's not pretty. We see a dysfunctional family. We see a family full of favoritism. We see a family full of envy, full of hatred, full of jealousy. When we look at what's on stage, we just see a mess. And then on top of that, we don't hear any reference to God at all through this passage, through these verses. The author just simply tells us the next thing and the next thing that happened. But when we look a bit closer... When we see the messiness in, the, in these people's lives, what we actually see is that there's more going on behind the scenes. We see that God is at work behind the scenes fulfilling His promises, fulfilling His covenant promises. And so this afternoon, I'll preach God's word to you under this theme, God is fulfilling His promises in the messiness of our lives. And to flesh that out, we'll see three things. Firstly, we'll see the bigger, the bigger picture. Then second, we'll see the common problem. And third, we'll see the unforeseen plan. Now, before we're introduced to Joseph's family and the family dynamics, we need to to zoom out a little bit to see the bigger picture. As was mentioned earlier, Genesis is a book about beginnings. It's about the beginning of the world. It's about the beginning of man, the beginnings of God's people. It's all about all these beginnings. That's what the word Genesis means. And we can see this in the repetition of the phrase, these are the generations. And that phrase comes back time and time again when you read through the book of Genesis. We're told about the generations of the world. We're told about the generations of Noah, the generations of Shem, Abraham, Ham, Isaac, Esau. So we're told about all these these generations All these Genesises, you could say. And so as we read that, we have to ask ourselves, what's the point of that? What is the Holy Spirit doing in all of that? What is the author trying to accomplish? What the author is doing is he's tracking those promises, those great promises that God had made to, to Adam and to Abraham, and he's tracking them through the book. We read from Genesis 12. And there in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham announcing his plan to redeem a world corrupted by the fall. Redeem the world that has been corrupted by sin and wickedness. God says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And if we break down that promise, what we see is three things that God was promising to Abraham. First, he said to Abraham that that Abraham would become this, this great nation. So that was the first part of the promise. So it would be a nation that would walk in the ways of the Lord in a, in a time where everyone was walking in the way of Sodom, in the way of wickedness. And then the second part, what we see is in the promise, God promises a relationship with his people. As Reverend Tahat mentioned when he opened the law to us this morning, that he would be their God and they would be his people. And God promised them that he would lead them to the land. 
He would bring them into the promised land. And so the author is tracking all of those blessings through the book of Genesis, through the generations from Abram to Isaac to finally Jacob. And we see that in the opening verses of our text in verses 1 and 2. So it says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. And then it says, these are the generations of Jacob. This is the last Genesis, you could say, we read in this book. It's the last genealogy the author records. Now why is that important? You see, what often happens when we read through the story or the history of of Joseph, we can be tempted to think that it's, it's actually all about Joseph. After all, he's the main character. Every, every chapter from here on to the end is, is pretty much just about him. After a broad sweep of what's going on in the world, the author slows down and focuses on him. And that's true to a degree, but it's not the whole truth. Because it's not just about Joseph, it's actually about Joseph and Jacob. It's about the family as a whole. It's about Jacob's family. It's a story about God's dealing with the whole family, not just with one. So Genesis is tracking those blessings. And this family that it's tracking would be the family, the nation of Israel. And so even for the readers of the text, which is the Israelites as they're going through the wilderness, when they read about it, they could be certain that they were the promised people. That God was with them as he was with Abraham. As they watch the the author track these promises, they could be sure that they were the promised people as well. They were the heirs of his covenant blessings. They were the heirs, the nation that would come. And so that's the trajectory of, of Genesis as we open it up. And this is foundational for our understanding of the rest of the book. So it's about God's faithfulness to his promises. But these promises, they don't come in a vacuum. They come into a world that is gripped by brokenness, a world that is gripped by the fall into sin. So just think of what happened before God comes to Abram and says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. Just think of what happened before that. Yes, it opens up beautifully in chapters 1 and 2 where God created this this beautiful world. He created a relationship with his people. And then we get the fall into sin. And then the, the world descends into this chaotic mess of each person doing what is right in their own eyes. A world where every thought and intention of the heart, as we read in Genesis 6, was corrupt. A corruption that is so deep that when God says the flood, that wasn't enough. Because it still continues. Just think of what happens later on in chapter 11 where in pride they build the the Tower of Babel. And Abram's descendants were not exempt from the corruption of the fall. And that's what we see in the, the next point, the common problem. So it's true that this was the family of promise. Jacob's family was the family of promise. God had chosen them. And they would be his chosen people who would bless the nations in a world under the curse. It's this beautiful, glorious promise. But when we look at Genesis 37, when we get, it comes back with a bad report. And the author doesn't tell us what that report was. It simply says that he brought a bad report back. It simply tells us that his brothers did something wrong. And so Joseph tells his dad the the mischief of his brothers. And as we can imagine, his brothers weren't very happy about that at all. You see, the brothers, you could say, had this this sort of Vegas attitude at what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What, What happens on the field stays on the field. They thought that Joseph was tattletaling on them. And older brothers don't really like to be tattletailed on. And so right away in this relationship, we see a rift. We see cracks emerging. We see friction. And then our passage introduces us to the relationship that Joseph has with his father, Jacob. And this is completely different. We read that Jacob loved Joseph. 
The passage emphasizes that. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. It was a special love. It was a love that was public knowledge as well. Everyone could see that Jacob was specially loved, that Jacob was, I mean, that Joseph was favored. As one author highlights, this favoritism doesn't begin here in, in Genesis 37. It actually begins earlier in Genesis 33. You can see it. So in Genesis 33, uh, Jacob's twin, Esau, was coming to him. And the last time Jacob and Esau saw each other, Jacob had deceived him and Esau wanted to kill him. And so Jacob was very worried. And he was expecting a, a sort of a massacre to happen. His brother would come back with, a, with full force of vengeance. And so what you read in Genesis 33 is Jacob starts sending gifts to his brother. And he starts arranging his, his family. He orders them. He, he kind of lines them out. And what's interesting is that Jacob tucks Rachel and Joseph behind, further back with Leah and these other sons further ahead. So they would be the ones that Esau meets first. Just imagine if you were Leah's son, wondering why Joseph was, was behind and you were further at the front. Apparently they were somewhat expendable. And so we see favoritism already in that passage and that favoritism only continues. His special love for, for Joseph shows itself in special gifts. The passage says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons, and he made him a robe of many colors. Now this colorful robe was more than just this, this special gift. It, it was more than, say, Dad just giving his son a really nice bike or something like that. There was more going on here. It was special. It was ornate robe. It can also be translated, it was a long-sleeved robe. It was a, an upper coat that, that reached down to the wrists and then went all the way down to the ankles. And it was what kings wore. It's what people wore of royalty. We find this in 2 Samuel 13, verse 18. David, David's daughters, it says there in that passage, were wearing a long robe with sleeves, for that is what the king's virgin daughters used to wear. It was a special robe. It was a robe of distinction. It was a robe of royalty. And so by giving Joseph this robe, Jacob was intentionally or unintentionally, we don't know, but he was making Joseph, he was setting him as the leader in the household, or so it seemed. And so you see this tension already with the brothers that existed, and then this happens, and that just adds oxygen to the flames. The brothers loathed him. And it wasn't just the four brothers who got a bad report from him. No, it was all the brothers. They all hated him. They hated him so much, as we read in verse 4, that they could not speak peacefully to him. They couldn't talk nicely to him when they saw him. They couldn't even greet him with the, the typical Hebrew greeting, which is shalom, peace to you. We can think about it this way. The dysfunction in the family was so great. If the brothers saw Joseph, they would completely ignore him. They wouldn't even look at him. That's how intense their hatred was. But the problems in this family only, only get worse. One day, Joseph comes to them with a dream. And he tells it vividly to them. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and, and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, we don't know what Joseph thought about the dream, but we do know what his brothers thought. They thought that by telling them this dream, that Joseph was announcing that he was going to be the leader in the, in the house, that he was going to rule over them. And they were fuming mad. And then it gets worse because the next day, Joseph wakes up with another dream. You can kind of imagine him coming down to the breakfast table, and once again, he has another dream. Look, I've dreamed another dream. There they were, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars, all of them bowing down to me. And that was the, the final straw. This dream was enough. Twice the passage mentions that they hated him all the more. They hated him for his words. They hated him for his dreams. They hated him because he had the audacity to come up with such a, a dream. 
So first this kid throws them under the bus. He tattletales on them. And then he gets this kingly robe from dad just showing how much dad loved him. And now he's the audacity to tell them that he's going to rule over them. Who does he think he is? And you get a sense of the intensity of their hatred and the question that they, they, they say to him. Are you indeed to reign over us, they say? Are you indeed to rule over us? We could put it differently. They said it like this. You don't really think that you're going to rule over us, do you? You don't really think that you're going to have dominion over us. Who in the world do you think you are? And so they saw nothing more in these dreams. They simply had enough. They had enough of his dreams and they had enough of Joseph. And that hatred turns into this blazing jealousy. And the word there for jealousy speaks of an emotion so intense that it's just going to spill into some sort of violent action. And so we reach to the end of our text. We reach verse 11. And we see this this family that is just broken and messy. The powders and the keg, you could say, and all we're waiting for is a spark. And you read through this passage, and you can wonder to yourself, what will become of God's promises? As we saw in our first point, God had these amazing promises for Abram and for his descendants. That he would make them a great nation. That they would be his people and that they would be a blessing. That they would dwell in the promised land as his chosen people. And this, Jacob, I mean, God reiterates this to Jacob. But then you look at the family that we're introduced to in Genesis 37. And you see jealousy. You see blazing hatred. You see all of that which is made worse by the favoritism that... Jacob has for Joseph. God promises them so much. And they just make a mess of things. And it seems as we read through it. That that their actions. Will threaten the very fulfillment of God's word to them. And isn't it the same so often for us? Isn't it true for us brothers and sisters? You see the problem here. The problem wasn't with. God's promises. It wasn't with the word that God had given to them. The problem was was with his people. And it's a problem that we share with Jacob's family. The problem is not God. The problem is us. God comes to his people with these amazing promises. And we botch it up. We make a mess of it. Just look at your lives. Look at the, the lives of of this church, or even the broader context in our churches. And you can see jealousy. You may see dysfunction. You may see hatred. You may see, you, you may see marriages that are just falling apart. You see addictions. You see ungodly, unchristian behavior. And so that's just out there, you could say. But then you look at your own life, and you see the same things. God comes to you with these amazing promises in the gospel and you botch it up. You mess it up time and time again. And you can wonder to yourself, you can be overwhelmed and you can think, what is going to happen to all these promises? What's going to happen to these promises that God has made to me? When God has said, because of his love for me in Jesus Christ, that he's going to renew me, that he's going to forgive me, that he's going to cleanse me from my sins, that he's going to make me into a new person. What's going to happen to those promises? Will I even make it? Will I make it to that promised inheritance where God will dwell with me? And so we can be overwhelmed when we look at our lives and when we see the the set. But God is at work behind the scenes. In all the chaos of Jacob's family, there's an unforeseen plan of God at work. God is there. And that brings us to our third point, the unforeseen plan. So God was at work. And this was something that actually Jacob recognized. Verse 11 says, And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. He kept the saying in mind. So this wasn't his first reaction to the dreams. When Joseph told him the second dream, his reaction was kind of like the brothers. 
He rebukes Joseph. He says, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Do you really think that, that I and, and your mother and your brothers are all going to bow down to you? Bow with our faces to the ground? Come on, Joseph. That's, that's enough. That's what his first reaction was. He first told them off. But then while the, the brothers are seething with jealousy, Jacob, we read, kept the saying in mind. He pondered it. It's almost like Jacob was, was sitting in his chair at night and he was thinking about Joseph's dreams and he was reflecting on the promises that God had given to him, the promises that he, he probably spoke to his own kids. And it dawned on him that there was, there was more to this than meets the eye. It dawned on him that something else was going on behind the scenes. He didn't know exactly what it was, but he understood that, was, that there was more to these dreams than just an overambitious teenager. And he was right. You see, dreams were, were no small thing in this time in the Bible. Now, often we get dreams, and we might think to ourselves when we've woken up, we think, what in the world was that about? And we, all, we don't often see greater significance in our dreams other than the fact why we wonder why this person was in that dream or that person. But we don't often think that there's a message there. But dreams, especially in this time in redemptive history, this time where God was working with His people, dreams were highly significant. God often revealed His will to His people in dreams. Think of Genesis 20. So Genesis 20, God comes to Abimelech in a dream. Or later in, in Genesis 31, Jacob says that the angel of God appeared to him in a dream. And so it should have been evident, not only to Jacob, but also to the brothers, that there was, there was something more here. Especially because the dream happens not once, but twice. Once you could maybe say is a coincidence, but twice, that's important. The doubling of a dream meant that the thing was determined by God. It was fixed. We read that in Genesis 41 verse 32. Joseph later tells Pharaoh, he says, The doubling of Pharaoh's dream, this is later on, means that the thing is fixed by God. God will shortly bring it about. So God was indirectly revealing his will to his people in these dreams that Joseph was having. He was making good on his promise to Abraham. He was making good on the promise that, that they would be a great people and that they would possess the land of his sojournings and that they would be a family that would be a blessing to the earth. And so what you see is in the midst of all this chaos, God is at work and he's, you could say he's setting the stage for the future fulfillment of those promises that he had made to this family. While it looks with human eyes, it seems that, that nothing's going to become of this small family. This small, fractured family. God is actually at work. And he may, in many ways, you could say that this was the genesis, that this was the beginning of Joseph becoming a ruler and a leader, whom God would use to bless his people, whom God would use to bless his people and to fulfill his covenant. And in this, brothers and sisters, we see a foreshadowing of, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Just think of the birth of Jesus into the world. The very same phrase is used, isn't it? And Mary pondered these things in her heart. God comes to, to Mary and he tells her that a leader would come from her body. That a Savior would come who would rule over the house of Jacob. And that this Savior would save God's chosen people. And that they would come with God, that they would dwell with Him. Not just in the promised land, but they would dwell with Him in eternity. And so what you see is that God comes into the brokenness of the world. God sends His Son into that. To redeem a broken and fallen world, which, which we messed up. To save His people. And to fulfill his word that he, that he made all the way back then to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Now unlike Joseph, for our Savior, it didn't come through him rising up and taking a crown and everyone bowing down to him. Instead, it came through the cross. 
where he was lifted up. His hands were pierced and everyone stood there and humiliated him. But he did that so that we who were once far off, once were strangers, once were outside of the, the promised land, you could say, that we were brought near by the blood of God, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, as we close this sermon, when you are overwhelmed because of your sin, when you're overwhelmed because of the, the brokenness in life and the messiness that you see in your own life, when you wonder what's going to become of what God has told me, you can take comfort because there is a backstage. There's more going on behind the scenes than what you see. There is more to your life than what meets the eye. There is more to the life of the church than what meets the eye. God is at work in the messiness of our lives. One day, He's bringing us to that new Jerusalem, that new promised land, you could say, where we will dwell with Him living in the abundance of His grace to us in Jesus Christ. Amen.
As we come to our faithful God in prayer, we'll also remember our elderly sister, Honey Wagoner. So she had a, a bad fall and, and hurt her knee, and she'll actually be, uh, they're saying, six weeks for her, her recovery. So we're going to bring her before the Lord in prayer. And then we'll also remember the mission work that is done by our, our brothers and, and sisters who are busy in P&G. So let us pray. Heavenly God, merciful and faithful Father, we praise you for your, for your perfect wisdom, for your sovereign hand in the, the sinfulness and the dysfunction of our lives. For Lord, when we look at all this, we, we just have to say that our thoughts are not your thoughts, neither our ways your ways. For Lord, you are rich in wisdom and in knowledge. It is so deep Father, your judgments are unsearchable. Your ways are beyond finding out. And we marvel that you enter the brokenness of our lives to fulfill your promises to us. That covenant promise, that re- the promises of your relationship with us. For Lord, sometimes we can be disheartened by the circumstances of our lives. And maybe the circumstances of, of what we find ourselves in the church. We can be discouraged. We can be overwhelmed, wondering if our our sin and our brokenness is so great that it will jeopardize your, your gospel's work in our lives. But Father, we thank you that your word gives us hope and it gives us comfort. We are comforted to know that you are at work, leading and guiding our lives to fulfillment of those promises where you will change our hearts, where you will renew our lives, where you will build up your church. You will gather in new believers from all nations and tribes and you will lead us triumphantly into the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with you forever, basking in the goodness of our Savior. Lord, this knowledge is so wonderful for us. It's, it's high, we, we cannot attain it. Father, we also bring before you the, the needs of this church. We thank you that we can pour out our hearts to you and we can do so in worship as well. Father, we bring before you our sister, Honey Wagoner. Father, be with her. You know the circumstances that she finds herself in. And Father, we, we pray that you would be with her as, as her, kneel, her knee heals up from the nasty fall that she had. We pray that you would give her patience, that you would strengthen her. And Father, we pray for, for her husband as well as he, he cares for her and as he comforts her. May his service to her be an extension of the the serving love of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may you give him strength. Lord, be with this family. Watch over them, we pray. And Father, we also think of the broader needs of of this world. We think particularly of the country, P&G, and the work that is being done there. Lord, we thank you that we can be involved in the global expansion of your church. For Lord, you have told us to go and make disciples of all nations. And Father, we thank you that we're able to send good and faithful men to those places. We think of Reverend DeYoung and and Reverend Paul. We pray that you would bless them and their families as they serve there, as they work in the the training of theological students as well. Watch over them, care for them, and may your gospel go out. May many be gripped by the gospel, and may their hearts be quickened by your grace. Father, we pray that you would also be with us in the remainder of this day. We pray that our worship may have been pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And may you bless our offerings and receive our praise. And do so not because we are worthy of it, but for the sake of Jesus Christ, our precious Savior, our Lord, and our King. Amen. You now have an opportunity to give of your offerings to the Lord. And as you do so, remember the words of Deuteronomy fifteen ten. It says, you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudge, grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. And after the offering, we'll sing from hymn 6, verses 1 and 2.
as you go forth into the brokenness of life, receive the blessing of your triumph, God, and go in peace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.